Thank Danny. That's a great song, boy, I'll tell you. Good song to preach after. Today, if you have your Bibles, <clears throat> I want to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 19. And we're going to be focusing on two verses today, verses 10 and 11. And I want to talk to you about what I, I personally believe is one of the most powerful verses in all the Bible. Uh, I've never really heard it preached on. It needs to be preached on. Um, but I think it's, without a doubt, uh, leads to one of the greatest studies that I want to take you to today that I think is uh, one of the most powerful things that we could ever do as a church together. You know, uh, up to now, as we've come through the book of Proverbs, I've taken the time to, you know, lay out the doctrinal aspect first. I've showed you how important that is and how that when you learn that, then you can just move into, uh, you know, the other area. Uh, and uh, I showed you that and then moved into the practical application. And uh, you know that... Uh, uh, I basically teach you three applications of Scripture, and um, it's, a, it's a really the way to put the Bible together. And I talked about the fact that how the Bible has a historical application. That means that it actually happened in history, that it's a real event that took place, not something that somebody made up. Also, I talk about the Bible has a doctrinal application. The word doctrine means to teach. And everything in the Bible will have a prophetic application toward the second coming of Christ and the establishment of God's kingdom, which is the theme of the Bible. And then I teach you that the Bible has a, an inspirational application. That's something that in a general sense that we can apply across the board to our relationship with Christ. Uh, but in reality, there is a fourth, there is a fourth concept uh, application of the Scriptures that goes way beyond the three. And uh, it will be the personal application. It'll be the application that you only apply to yourself. It'll be the application that forget the doctrine, forget the historical, forget across the board in a nice practical, general way. No, it'll be something that goes right into your heart. It'll be something that when you apply this one, you can forget who's sitting left or right of you or in front of you or behind you. But it speaks right to it right to your heart and your relationship uh, where your walk with God. And today, I'm going to tell you right up front, I'm going to preach to you. Uh, there won't be any teaching today. I'm sorry. I'll pray here in a moment. You can leave if you want to do that. But a verse like we're going to talk about today, it demands to be preached. There are certain things in the Bible that I believe that if you preach them instead of, you try to teach them instead of preach them, you probably lose your salvation. Just kidding here. <laughs> This verse, this concept, this passage screams to be preached. And today I'm, I'm praying, uh, you know, it's, it's a concept and a principle so powerful that if you ever fully grasp it today, and this is why this is a personal application. This is not going to be, there's not going to be no doctrine in it today. There's not going to be any history in it. I'm not aiming across the board to give you some practical truth that will help you. No, no, no. We're going to talk today about probably the most precious application of the Scriptures, and that is directly into your heart. A concept and a principle so powerful that if you ever fully grasp it, you'll never be the same person again. And I know within our church, there's many of you men and women, and you young men and ladies, who God has changed your life. I understand that. And there are some in any church that God has not changed their life. And I'm praying today that one of two of you uh, will get past yourself, get past all that you focus as so crucial in your life, and get back to the greatest single fundamental concept that will change your life forever. Now in the Bible, we have problems, me and you. And the Bible talks about that you and I have three fundamental infirmities that we struggle with all the time. We talked about this a little bit Thursday night. At Romans chapter 6, verse 19, the first infirmity that it says we have is our flesh. Somebody asked the question, did the devils <coughs> attack us? Or did the devil attack us? You know, and how does he come after us in our, in our walk with God Thursday night? And I, I, made the, uh, I made the statement that the fact that the devil doesn't have to come after us because we do a very good job of screwing ourselves up. And it always comes back to our flesh. The flesh that you and I have, the book of Romans talks about, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. 
Fundamentally, every problem you have will start with your own nature and start with your flesh. It's just that simple. The second thing that we have as an infirmity, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, is we simply don't know how to pray. I don't mean this in a bad way, and I hate to be negative about this this morning, but I want to say that probably 98 to 99% of God's people's prayers today are worthless. They never get out of the room by which they speak them. Because there are some real biblical things that have to be behind prayer for prayer to be workable. And we, we don't know how to pray. He makes it very clear that's one of our infirmities. The third infirmity is found in Psalm 7710. This is the one I want to really focus on today. And that is we have the constant infirmity that we forget what God has done for us. And we forget, and when we forget what God has done, then we lose obviously, our perspective. And we start taking all that God has done for us for granted. And then we lose sight of this great verse that uh, I want to preach about today. We lose our edge. We lose our discretion, our our perspective, our balance, our, our understanding. And in time, many times, we just lose track of God in our lives. And yet we come to church every Sunday. You have the right Bible. You see, people think you can't do that. Coming to church means nothing. I'm glad you're here. Having the right Bible means nothing. If it doesn't change and impact your life from who you once were to where you are now and keep you there, what are you doing here today? Well, we think today that we can, you know, we can go to church, have a Bible, and uh, that makes us okay. We don't go to the things of the world, and we think that in our mindset that that makes us okay. And we think that we can't ever get separated from God in that. You're wrong. Over there in Luke chapter 2, verse 46, the story is that Jesus' own parents were on the road going somewhere, and all the family was together, and everybody was having a good time. And the Bible says that they supposed that Jesus was with them. When they got to their destination, they found out that he was nowhere around. And they lost track of him for three days before they found him in the temple. Now, there's your little deal on the third day, but we don't have time to get in that this morning because I promised you no doctrine. <laughs> they thought he was with them. They're all walking along, holding hands, talking about that, and they just, they just assumed and supposed that Jesus was right there with them. And for three days, they didn't know he wasn't with the family. And then one day, they woke up three days later and said, hey, where's he at? Now, if his own family can lose them on the road going where they're wanting to go, I want to tell you something. In your walk in life, you can lose track of him and think he's with you when he's not. Now, for you guys that want to learn how to preach, this is what you do. See, I made that statement, stopped, didn't say anything, walked around the pulpit like this. <laughs> Everybody's waiting for the next thing I say. I'm just taking my time today. Now I'm dizzy and I can't find where I was because I was going around in a circle. <clears throat> now, I want to read today for you <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. Then I want to preach to you this morning. It says, delight is not seemingly for a fool, much less for a servant to have rule over princes. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. Craig Hansen, I know you're sitting way back in the back. You feel pretty spiritual this morning. I need a good prayer today. Can you handle me? I know you can, son. This water actually is yellow today. I know. Did you get it, Jack? You didn't get it out of that thing in the men's room. It's got that handle on it, did you? 
It tastes yellow. Oh, boy. Why don't you just get me a bottle back there, John, and bring it up? Would you do that for me, please? I, this here is going to erode my kidneys, I'm afraid. Now, verse 10 says, and what he's saying is, is very simple and a very simple principle. He says, a man who is a fool will never experience any delight in the things of the Lord. That's what he's saying. He'll have heartache, he'll have disappointment, he'll have, or a woman, he'll have uh, unfulfilled dreams and desires, he'll have trouble, he'll have broken promises, he'll have busted relationships, and he'll have no hope. And the illustration is really clear. Just as a servant will not wake up some morning and find that he's in charge over the kings and the princes, a fool will not wake up some morning and be happy with life or delight himself in the things of God. Thank you, John. The verse is pretty self-explanatory. Now, that's not the verse that I'm going to preach to you about. I just was, that one was before verse 11, and I had to get rid of it before I could get where I needed to go. Easy verse, but here we go. Then we come to the day, and here lies our message. Verse 11. It says, The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is to his glory to pass over a transgression. Now, for you and for me, the average Christian, the Christian that understands the Word of God, we're to overlook many of the sins of the brethren. The Bible says in Romans 15, 1, you that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. There will be things that younger Christians do or mature Christians do. Some things that they'll get into, some things that they'll say, and, uh, and uh, you and I as God's people, uh, we, need to, we need to help them with it and overlook those things and not let it become a problem for us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now, there's the key to your forgiveness. There's going to be some people in life that it's going to be hard for you to forgive. I mean, you have your garden variety, somebody says something to you, and it's a no-big-brainer. But sometimes, sometimes people are going to do something to you, they're going to say something about you, or they're going to do something that really hurts you, and you're going to have a hard time forgiving them. And let me just say this, when you can't forgive them through your own Christian walk and relationship with God, then there comes a time when you've got to forgive them for Christ's sake. You've got to do it for Him. And you do it for Him based on what He did for you. It's just that simple. You can't forgive on your own, then you do it through Christ for His sake. And many people have a problem forgiving people. And you know, unfortunately, most of God's people can never, can never do that. So they go around in life with absolutely no delight in life. And it'll come to the point where people will hold grudges for 30 years. I've seen families have fights uh, for, for 30, 40 years that they never spoke to each other. I've seen, I've seen children have problems with their mother or the father or vice versa, and they refuse to uh, bury the hatchet and work things out and try to go through life thinking that they can actually have many times ex-husbands and ex-wives. Sometimes they get along. Most of the time they do not. And many times it turns into, it turns into uh, bitterness. And bitterness is something that nobody really wants to ever go down that road and experience. Because bitterness, we get the idea that bitterness is like me taking poison and it's going to kill the person I'm bitter against. Only thing that bitterness is going to do is kill you. It's going to destroy you. All because of the fact that we do not have the ability, it's not to God's glory for us to pass over a transgression. But I want to go beyond what I just said. I want to take you into a personal application of this verse that will hopefully change your life. And today, forget. Forget doctrinal, forget historical, forget inspirational. Let's get one-on-one -on -one with the Lord this morning. And let's forget, honestly, that anybody else is in this room but you. Let's just stop and quit comparing ourselves to everybody else. Let's stop looking at other people and, and, and masking what's wrong with us by trying to blame somebody else. Let's just take the personal application of what I'm about to say and let it sink in and hopefully, hopefully, it will change your life.
There's no question about in a church this size that there's some young men and some young ladies, maybe some couples, some moms or dads, that you're on a road to destruction. You're headed down the wrong road. You've been hanging out with the wrong people. You've been listening to the wrong stuff. And you're come to the place where your attitude this morning toward the things of God is not where it needs to be. And you know why? You've forgotten what God has done for you. You've lost sight of the greatest day in your life, and that is the day when He, to His glory, passed over your transgression. And I want to preach you on that great truth today. Verse 11 says, And it is to His glory to pass over a transgression. And I want you to go home with this today. I want you to forget that there's anybody else in here just like you're here all by yourself and I'm preaching to you. Now there are some great examples of this in the Bible that will illustrate this great precept and this great verse. But I think the greatest example ever will be found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I want you to turn to that passage of Scripture. The greatest study in the Bible, in my own humble opinion, on grace and how, to the glory of God, God passed over my transgression. And it sets the stage and the model for every one of us today based on what God has done for us, how you and I have to understand what He did, and God gives us the ability to pass over some things that people do. In Exodus chapter 12, the great story that illustrates uh, much of this is the fact that back in the children of Israel, when they were coming out of Egypt, God came down and He told them to take a lamb and kill that lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel. That would mean on the two sides and the top. And the Bible says that when the, when, when the Lord came through Egypt that night, a type of the picture of the world, when the Lord came through Egypt that night, when He saw the blood, he said, when I come through Egypt that night, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Amen. We sing the song. When I see the blood, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. You know what God did when He saw the blood of Christ and saw you in it and you came to Him? He passed over your transgression for Christ's sake. That's what He did. And I say to you today, the discretion of a man deferred his anger, and it is to his glory to pass over a transgression. Well, that's what we lack today. We lack the discretion to be able to see people, circumstances. They may not dress the way we like them to dress. They may not do all the things the way we want them to do or the way we would do it. And we let that be a stumbling block that breaks the bond between two Christians. You got to be ashamed of yourself. I want to tell you a story this morning about grace. I want to tell you the story this morning that is such a personal application that close your eyes, get it in your mind that you are the only one here today. I want to talk to you about the story of David and Mephibosheth. One of the greatest stories and examples of grace in the Bible. Let's read together. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba, a servant whose name was Ziba. And when he had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machar, the son of Amiel in Lodibar. Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machar, the son of Emil, from Lodibar. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold thy servant. 
And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake. And I will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertaineth to Saul and all to, into all his house. Thou therefore, thy and thy sons and thy servants, shall till the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits, that he, the master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, my master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, According to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servants, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Makar, and, and he dwelt in the house of Ziba, where the servants unto Mephibosheth. And so Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table and was lame on both his feet. You know, the Old Testament has always been a favorite part of the Bible for me. I'm not very complex when it comes to the Word of God. I'm not very smart when it comes to the Word of God. I believe the less IQ you got, the better chance you have of learning something from God. I think intelligence sometimes hurts your ability to just have a childlike faith. But I learned a long time ago that the reason why I love the Old Testament is because the Bible's a picture book. We have in our bookstore back here, uh, I can see them at the corner back there, uh, children's books on the Bible, children's Bibles. And when they write, when they write books about the Bible for children, they know that children um, don't have a really good comprehension concept yet. So they illustrate what they read. So you get a book back there and uh, maybe a book of the uh, great events in the Bible. It'll start to talk about Noah and you'll, you'll read a page and then you'll turn a page and it'll be a full color picture that will illustrate what you just read. So the child can see what he reads, see the picture, correlate the picture with what he read and make the, make the analogy of what he's doing. He'll read a few more pages and then there'll be another picture. And uh, it'll go through that whole book that way. And you know, Bible says, Jesus said, except you come to me as a little child, you have no part of me. And when God wrote the Bible, and I know the scholars don't get this, but the scholars don't get much. When God wrote the Bible, He wrote me a picture book. He wrote me a book that I would go through studying something and read it, and then He'd give me a picture, like He's given me here of Mephibosheth and David. He talked to me about God dying on the cross. He talked to me about grace. He talked to me about all the great principles. And then he'd give me a picture of it so I could understand it. Every great New Testament doctrine or principle will be illustrated by a story in the Old Testament to make it clear and plain. That's what we're going through on people ministry. And you know, you know what's wrong with us today? I'm sorry, I said that wrong. I told you to think that you were here all by yourself. You know what's wrong with you today? You know what's wrong with me today? We're the only two here. Look to your left. Look to your right. That person isn't there. You can go ahead and slap the person in front of you, David, because he's not here. He's a lot bigger than you are, so I'd slap him gently. You know what's wrong with you and me? You know why I, I won't forgive others? You know why you won't forgive others and pass over their transgression that they do to us? Hey, I've seen them sometimes when they've done nothing to you. I've seen people not like somebody or have a grudge or somebody, and, and that person never did a thing to them. But you know why that's the way we are? We forgot the day that God reached down and passed over our transgressions for Christ's sake. We forgot the day that everything that we said was an abhorrence to a holy God. We actually think, because we get so self-indulged, so self-righteous, we, we, we think we're so important and we think to the point where we, we just, we, we got so much going for us. We forget the day that God reached down and touched us and passed over our transgressions for Christ's sake. 
He did what nobody else could do. And we as God's people are not willing to do that for somebody else. Remember? You remember how it was before you got saved? Some of you do. Many of you don't. You've lost it now in your who you are. You've lost the remembrance of that in your career. You've come to the point where you've, you've forgotten the day. As the Bible says in Psalms chapter 40, when you waited patiently in the Lord, you inclined unto Him, He heard your cry, He brought you up also out of a miry pit, and He sets your feet upon a rock. You forget what that pit was like. Oh, you got the joy, joy, joy down in your heart now. You got a church. You got the Bible. You got everything you want. You got a good job. You got all your family, everything around you. We forget the day we were in that pit. That's where we belong. We still should be down there. And to God's glory, he passed over my transgression. We have forgotten that. And I believe that God puts stories in the Bible just like 2 Samuel chapter 9. Because we forget. Now, as we look at this story here, let me begin to build a case here for you. Let me, let me set the scene for you. Let's identify our cast of characters in this great picture that God is giving us to illustrate grace and to illustrate how great a day it was when God to his glory passed over my transgression through Jesus Christ. First off, we have David. David in our story will represent for us God the Father. You'll have a guy by the name of Jonathan mentioned here. Jonathan was David's best friend back there. And Jonathan in our story will, will represent Jesus Christ. They both names start with J. Then we have the house of Saul. Now we know that Saul, uh, in the Bible, there's 18 types of the Antichrist, and Saul's one of them. Saul is a picture of an unshaved man who cares nothing about the things of God. Saul's a picture of, of the Antichrist. He's the picture of the devil. He's a picture of the world system. Saul was David's mortal enemy all David's life. He tried to kill him on numerous occasions. <coughs> And just like, just like God and the devil, the battle between Saul and David was, was over a kingdom. God kills Saul. The Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15, and 1 Chronicles 10, 12, that, that God took his mercy from him, and Saul was killed by God. Our next character in our study to help us make this picture come alive is, is Ziba. And Ziba will be a type of the Holy Spirit of God. Ziba does the bidding of God, David, and goes to get the person that David wants. David, as a type of God the Father, works through Ziba, a type of the Holy Spirit of God. Note Ziba, uh, a type of the Holy Spirit. He knows who, in verse 3. He knows where that person is, in verse 4. And he knows their condition, in verse 3. And I want to say something to you. Today, as we sit here today, Holy Spirit of God knows who you are. Holy Spirit of God knows where you're at. And He knows right now your spiritual condition with God. That, then you have Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth is a type of an unsaved man. He'll be me and you before we got saved. Mephibosheth, his name means breathing shame. You know, before you and I got saved, everything out of your mouth was a breathing shame to a holy God. Do you understand that? The Bible says in verse 3 that he's lame on his feet. He has absolutely no ability to walk. And before you and I got saved, we had no ability to have a walk with God. We were lame on our feet. In verse 8, he himself understands this condition, and he calls himself a dog. 
2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, hitchhiking off of Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11, tells that that's an unsaved man. Mephibosheth, breathing shame, he's an undesirable individual. He's filthy. He smells. He's unkept. And he's from the wrong family, the family of the devil, John 8, 44, Saul, that is the sworn enemy of David, who's a type of God the Father. As we look at Mephibosheth and David, we see the complete, total, contradictive position between you and me before we got saved with God. Mephibosheth has nothing. Now, before you got saved, you may have thought you had something. I got news for you. You didn't have anything. David, on the other hand, has the wealth of the world. Mephibosheth is a filthy beggar. David, on the other hand, is king. Mephibosheth is filthy and dirty and unkept. David is clean and wholesome. Mephibosheth is lame. He's a cripple. He cannot walk. David walks tall and strong. The contrast between Mephibosheth breathing shame and David is the difference between night and day. And it pictures where you and I were the day God found us. And yet in our story, just like there was in your life if you're saved today, no matter how contradictive you was toward God, no matter what's your name breathing shame, no matter where you and I were, just like in our story, there came a day when God the King said to the Holy Spirit of God, is there any left down there of the house of Saul, the devil, that I can still bring in and make my son? Zeba said the Holy Spirit of God, yes, there's Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul. The king said, where's he at? And he said, oh, king, he's down at Lodibar. And the king said, go fetch him. Do you remember the day when the Holy Spirit of God first knocked on your door? You know, we're famous for remembering days. Most of you kids can't remember this. Some of you older ones will. I remember exactly what I was doing the day JFK was shot. I was making my way out of the grassy knoll. <laughs> I was in the eighth grade. I was homesick that day. And I was watching something on television, and all of a sudden, Walter Cronkite broke in and said that the, the president had just been assassinated in Dallas. I remember that day till I die. That day is indelibly, indelibly imprinted on my mind. There'll never be a day in my life when I won't know exactly what I was doing on that day when President Kennedy was shot. Remember what you're doing when 9-11 happened? Most of you now were alive for that. Some of you were getting your noon feeding. <laughs> I was working down Payola, Kansas, and I was out marking some fiber, fiber lines, and I looked up, and all of a sudden, I saw all these jets with their vapor trails. They were turking around and making a circle and going back there. I mean, like five or six of them. And I got a call on the radio from my foreman that, that uh, the terrorists had just attacked 9-11. I'll never forget that as long as I live. We forget, don't we? We forget JFK. We won't forget that. We forget, never forget 9-11. But we forget the day that the Holy Spirit of God came and first fetched you. You know, love stories or movies in the Bible or movies in life are all out of the plots of the Bible. Hey, you know, love stories, you know how they go. A guy looks at a gal and they're going to school someplace or they work at a place and he sees her, he thinks she's beautiful, he falls in love immediately. She won't give him the time of day. And then, you know, he goes over at the water cooler sometimes and he says something stupid. She doesn't give him the time of day. He stays persistent pretty soon. You know, she recognizes him pretty soon because of his persistence. Uh, uh, pretty soon, they, you know, they go out for the first date. Pretty soon she sees his good qualities and she falls in love with him and they get married and live happily ever after. That's how it always goes. It all goes back to that first time that he walked over with the love in his heart, beating out his, out his throat, wanting to talk to her because he was in love with her. I'm going to tell you something. 
You've forgotten a day when God came to you with his heart beating up in his throat because he loved you so much. When he sent the Holy Spirit of God to fetch you. How do we forget things like that? And what follows will be a picture of the day through God's grace he passed over your transgression. Now in verse 6 it says Mephibosheth, they go and get him and they bring him to David. And he falls on his face and, and David calls him by name. You know, let me just stop here for a moment. The Bible says that they go and get him and bring him to David. You know you could have never got to God on your own. The Bible says there's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God. You and I <coughs> could have never got to the king and our throne room on our own. Somebody had to come and get us. David calls him by name. Do you know that God knew your name long before you knew his? You know God knew your name while you were using his as a cuss word? He sent the Holy Spirit of God to fetch us. Now that's not all. Look at verse 7. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. It was a glory of him to pass over a transgression, Proverbs says. And our verse says, fear not. He's saying, in essence, I will pass over your transgression for Jonathan's sake, a type of Christ. And I will, I will restore all you lost in Saul's family. You're now in my family and to be one of my sons, and you eat bread at my table continually. Oh, the undying love that God has for you and for me. Don't I wish that my love was undying for him as his is for me? Don't I wish that, that every day of my life I woke up and throughout that day I would love him with all of my heart, with all of my mind, and all of my soul as he loves me? Romans 5, 8 says, But God commended his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We sing, oh, 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 the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. When he did all of that because it was to his glory through Christ Jesus to pass over my transgression. He looked beyond my sin and he saw my need. Why can't we do that with others? Why can't we simply see how God looked at us and he saw my sin, but he looked beyond my sin and he saw the need that I had. And yet we look at other people, we see their sin and we never see their need. You know why? Because we've forgotten today God looked at us and passed over our transgression. It's just that simple. Look at verse 8. Mephibosheth knew he doesn't deserve any of this. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I? Well, there it is. The greatest question of my life that I'll never be able to answer. I forget about your issues, forget about my issues. Forget your issues with others that don't really matter. Forget my nitpicking and things and people that, that I don't like. Ask yourself this, and stay on this till you get an answer. You'll never get an answer, so it'll always keep you right on point. How in the world, why in the world, would God want anything to do with this dead dog called Bob Alexander? Amen. I'm telling you. We have forgotten what we were the day God called us by name. 
when he sent the Holy Spirit of God after us. <laughs> People say, well, I just don't believe that God could ever send a man to hell. You kidding me? We all deserve to be in hell. My question is, what I'll never figure out, why in the world would God ever, ever want to take anybody to heaven, especially me? And the answer is grace. The answer is grace. It was to His glory to pass over my transgression through Christ. Now look at verse 9, 10, and 11. Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertaineth to Saul and to all his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits, that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, my master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, According to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servants, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of my sons. I want you to understand something. <clears throat> After we get saved and God gives us all he has for us, we have what the Bible says that God wants to produce fruit in your life. This will be in Galatians chapter 9, verse 22 through 33, where the fruit of the Spirit. But I want you to notice that it's the Holy Spirit of God <clears throat> that does the work, not Mephibosheth. God's people are like today are like the farmers that you read about in the news in Kansas and Missouri and Oklahoma. <clears throat> They're farmers, just like your Christians. But they have a terrible dilemma. <clears throat> they have crop failure year after year after year. They're going in the hole. They're losing their, their farms. They're losing everything. You know why? Because they got thousands of acres of land, but they cannot bear any fruit to make any money to live. And God's people are just like those farmers. Being a farmer doesn't make, automatically bring you fruit. And being a Christian doesn't automatically make you fruitful. You have to realize here that it's the Holy Spirit of God that does the work. And I want you to notice, Mephibosheth doesn't do the work. He's not working in the field. You know where he stays? He stays at the table fellowshipping with God and eating the bread. Verse 11. Do you see that? He eats bread at my table continually. Are you enjoying the fruits of your relationship with God? Are you just always complaining about what you don't have? Are you focusing on all the blessings that God has given you? Are you just so self-centered and selfish that all you see is what you don't have and what you want? And the more you try to make it happen, the less it will happen because the verse is very clear. Your job and my job is to sit at the table and come and dine. The master calleth, come and dine. You can feast at Jesus' table anytime. Your job and my job is to get the book and through what you do, the Holy Spirit of God does the work. Now, you know what the issue with some of God's people is today? You've not been showing up for supper. Your diet consists of junk food, not spiritual food. Your diet consists of the things of the world. You're consumed with your job, your career. You're consumed with a relationship. You're consumed with this or with that. You're consumed about what you want to do in life, and none of it really concerns anything with God. Many of God's people are eating out of the garbage can of Christianity, the NIV, the ASV, the stuff that is putrid when it comes to God. And wondering why there's never anything in their life. Wonder why they're never not happy. Wonder why they're ever, they can't get to the point in their life where they can ever experience the fruit of God in their life. It's because you can't do it. The Holy Spirit of God has to do it. And you've got to put yourself in a certain position for that to happen. 
Now you got to know. That's the story. But you got to know. When all this went down, Mephibosheth was scared to death. Some of you maybe are here today and you know that you're not saved. If you died today, you don't know for sure that you'd go to heaven. And sitting in a place like this scares you to death. I understand that. I get it. Only thing I can say to you is what, <coughs> what David said to Mephibosheth. Fear not. Nobody's going to hurt you. Don't ever run away from the time that the Holy Spirit of God comes to fetch you. There's nothing to be afraid of. I've always thought the fact that, that the world treats us terrible, the world just beats us six ways from Sunday, the world will send you to hell and destroy your life. Jesus is the only man on the history of the planet who never did anything wrong to anybody, who never hurt anybody, yet nobody wants anything to do with him. Now, when he heard the news, I mean, put yourself in his position today. It's just me and you here. Let's talk for a moment. When he heard the news that David was coming to get him, and he knew that he was the enemy of Saul, and he knew what Saul had done to David and what God had done to Saul, he thought for sure David was coming to kill him. Skettle old scores. I mean, he's helpless. He's a cripple. He can't run. He can't even walk. He can't get away. Oh, and I can just see it as they, he's sitting there and somebody had told him, you know, hey, I just heard that David's coming to get you. He wants to see you. He's taking you. And he had to have a heart attack. About that time, there's a knock on the door. Open in the name of the king. Oh. They come in, they pick him up. And you know, the guards, they don't tell you nothing. They're like police officers when they pull you over and ask this question. You say, what's this all about? Don't worry about it. <laughs> Something happened, officer? Just get in your car and drive. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Don't you know Mephibosheth is saying, what's, what's wrong? You know, what's going on? And they just said, I don't know. Just come on. You're going with us. Oh, I can just see him. They pick him up and carry him to the king's palace. And I, I just, they walk inside and there's the big doors going into the throne room. And he waits there and I, he's, I, I guarantee you he is shaking uncontrollably. He knows he's going to die. He knows he deserves to die. He's the grandson of Saul, the enemy of David. And he knows as well as he is, David's going to settle an old score. All of a sudden, he hears those trumpets blowing, heralding in the king. Those big doors open up, and they start to carry him before the throne in the presence of the king. He looks to the left and the right, not looking up, but looking around, and he sees all the queens and the princes and the nobles and the lady and the men of king's court all around the king. And they bring him right up right up in front of that throne with the king sitting on it and put him right in front of that throne. Then something happened that never happened before in history. Something happened that never happened before and has never happened since. Mephibosheth, the lame beggar breathing shame, is sitting there as a cripple on the floor in front of the throne. David is on that throne. And you know what David did? David got up to the gasp of everybody that was in that room. And the king came down to the beggar. I said, the king came down to the beggar. There was a day when the angels, the cherubim and the seraphim walked into the throne room and God was not on the throne. He was gone. And they looked around and said, where did he go? 
And the Holy Spirit of God says, he went down to the beggars. Praise God. Oh, praise God, there was a day in your life and my life when the king saw you and me as a beggar, knew we could never get to him, and we were brought by the Holy Spirit of God to his feet, and then he left the throne of heaven, came down off that throne, and passed over my transgression. Glory to God. Mephibosheth, he can't even look up. He's waiting for that sword to pierce his neck. He's waiting to be killed any moment. He's waiting for the decree from the king. Depart ye, cursed into everlasting fire and brimstone. Because that's what he deserved. That's what you and I deserved. He's praying to God, I wasn't there, I'm telling you. I wasn't there for him. But I went through the same thing as if you did, you just forgot. He's praying what I was praying. Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then the king says his name, and he opens his eyes. He can't look up, but right there in front of him. I know this happened. It isn't in the Bible. I know how the Bible works. He couldn't look up. He opens his eyes, and they standing right there at the feet of the king. And he thought to himself, those are the most beautiful feet I've ever saw in my life. But he was transfixed on the shoes that he wore. Right on the top of the shoes where the buckle should have been, there were two red rubies. And just for a quick second, he thought to himself, wow, that looks like a blood wound in his feet. Because there was a day coming when my king had the blood wounds on his feet, when he passed over my transgression. Oh, I'm telling you. About that time, he's shaking uncontrollably. He feels a hand gently touch his filthy head. And a voice says, Fear not, Mephibosheth. I'm not going to kill you. You see, I made a promise to a man whose name started with J, Jonathan, Jesus, that I would take care of the household of Saul that was left. And I'm not going to hurt you. And nobody here is going to kill you. The voice says, Mephibosheth, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get you out of those filthy garments and we're going to wrap you up in fine linen. We're going to clean you up by the washing of the water of the word. And Mephibosheth, verse 11, you're now going to be my son. And Mephibosheth, verse 10, you're going to eat at my table. You're going to live in my palace with me. You're going to be seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And I'll tell you something else. This isn't written yet, but Romans 8 is going to say that I'm going to adopt you. And you're going to become my son. And not only that, but verse 9, I'm going to give you an inheritance. All the land that was taken from you, now it's all yours again. And I'll tell you something else. You never have to work another day in your life. Zeba and his sons will do all the work. You just sit here with me at my table. Have some more bread. Well, Mephibosheth can hardly believe his ears. He says, but why? Why? I'm so filthy. My name is breathing shame. I'm so dirty. I'm so corrupt in everything that I do. And on top of that, by family, I'm your enemy. I'm a dog in the sight of the king. Why me? David looks at him and says, I'll tell you why, Mephibosheth. Why you? It's called grace. It's called grace. You know, Mephibosheth, one time, I wasn't doing too good either, and I committed two sins that there was no sacrifice for, and I should have been killed. But my Heavenly Father came down to me, and He gave me what was called in the Bible the sure mercies of David. And because he gave me those sure mercies when I deserved to die, 
I learned my lesson to give grace to others because God gave it to me. And besides that, the wisest man, he's not born yet, but the wisest man that will ever live will write in the future the discretion of a man to further his anger and it is his glory to pass over transgression. That's why. Well, the flood of emotions, you can imagine the flood of emotions in Mephibosheth, the flood of emotions of, of coming from the fact that he thought he was going to die and that he's heard all of this and it's hard for him to imagine. And he begins to weep. Tears of joy run down his dirty face and stain his face where the dirt was. And he says, oh, I'm so happy. Grace, grace, amazing grace. I'm so happy, King David. Thank you so much. I'm happy. I, I, I've never felt like this in my mind, in my heart. He says, I, 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 if I had a song in my heart, I could just sing. David said, well, Mephibosheth, go ahead and sing. In fact, I got the song for you. One of my boys wrote this, and I think it fits the occasion. One day the silver cord will break and I no more will sing as now but oh the joy when I awake within the palace of the king. Sing it with me. For I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by his grace. For I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. You see, folks, I'm Mephibosheth. There was a time in my life when I was against God. I can't speak for you. There's a time in my life when I was God's enemy. I can't speak to you. There was a time in my life when I was in the wrong family that my very name and existence was breathing shame to a holy God. That I, my righteousness was like filthy rags and I was hungry and I was destitute and I was thirsty and there was nothing to eat and nothing to drink. I was a beggar begging for the crumbs of this old world. And then God one day sent His Holy Spirit to fetch me. And he did to you too if you're saved today. Because we're all Mephibosheth. And the last thing in verse 13, it says, And so Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table, and he was lame on both his feet. I want you to know something. His garments got changed, he got cleaned up, he eats at the king's table, but he's still lame on his feet. He's still a sinner. That's the greatest news that I could ever hear. I don't have to be perfect for God to save me. I don't have to reach some goal or standard that God says, okay, I accept you now. He accepted me before I did anything. He died for me long before I was born. And from the foundation of the world, God saw me and he saw you and he put me in Christ. And all I had to do was accept him. He never got over being lamed. He just went from one family to another family. He went from filthiness to cleanliness. He went to being hungry to being filled. He went from a hopeless end to endless hope. He went from out of the darkness into the light. All by grace. And God passing over his transgression because of a promise that he made to a man whose name started with J, Jesus Christ, and our story, Jonathan. And even though he was still lame on his feet, he was no longer a beggar of the things of this world. He now has an inheritance. He now sits at the king's table as a child of the king, as one of his sons continually at his table, eating his bread and fellowshipping with his new father. 
And that same grace that God gave us to forgive us is what we should give to others to forgive them. In passing over transgressions. It has been said many times and it's been said many ways. Forgive many things in others. Forgive nothing in yourself. They who forgive most shall be most forgiven. It is easier to forgive an enemy than it is to forgive a friend. It has been said that if he sins, he's just a man. If he loves sin, then he's an unsaved man. If he hates sin, then he's a saintly man. But if he forgives sin, he's Jesus Christ. And that's what we are to be. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. At the discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is to his glory to pass over a transgression. Now, <clears throat> if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, don't let this message get by you. If you're here this morning and you're a child of God and you're struggling in your own world with forgiving others or the ability to get past things in your life, get past yourself. Get back to the day when you didn't look too hot. Put yourself in the same position that you want to put others in and pass over the transgression. I want to say to you this morning, if you're here this morning and you've never, if you don't know for sure, if you died, that you'd go to heaven. The Holy Spirit of God come down from the throne today to fetch you. And as I'm speaking and as I have been speaking, he's walking up and down these aisles and he's woven back and forth and he's pulling on the heartstrings of your heart. And sitting here today, there's no question in my mind, anybody's mind, that you don't know where you're at this morning. I promise you, every man and every woman, saved or lost, knows exactly where you're at because Zeba did the work today. But right now, the Holy Spirit of God's calling you. Christ died for you. Salvation is not complicated. It's not hard. It's simply this. <clears throat> God wanted a creation to have fellowship with Him and love Him. So God created a scenario that was a perfect scenario. But God won't force anybody to love him. So God gave man the free will choice to <clears throat> disobey God. And obviously, Adam and Eve, man did. And at that point in time, it threw the whole world into disarray. It threw the whole world into sin. And where why man sin entered the world, now sin is passed upon all men. And then we were sinners after that point. You know what? In spite of that, God looked down and he saw you and me, just like he saw Mephibosheth. And God made a way for you and me to get out from under the sin debt that we all owe. Because you can't pay it yourself. And you can never get to your God yourself. God had the Holy Spirit of God come and get you. And God brought you right to that throne. And then God got off of that throne and came down to die for you and for me. And if you'll trust Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior today, you're not becoming a Baptist. You're not becoming anything. You're coming, becoming God's child by a new birth that takes you, just like Mephibosheth, out of Saul's family and puts you at the table of God's family. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Grace, grace, amazing grace. Maybe you're sitting here today, you're a young man or a young lady, and you don't know for sure if you died today, you'd go to heaven to spend an eternity with the Lord. I'm not asking if you're saved. Everybody's saved. I'm not asking you if you, I'm asking you this. Here's the bottom line. If you died right now, are you 100% sure you would go to heaven? That's the only question here today. And if you're not, after the message that you heard today, my plea to you would be make sure. Come to the king's table. You and me who were Mephibosheth, Come. And let the king change your clothes. Let him make you one of his sons. Let him give you that inheritance. 
with every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, if you're here this, this morning and you'd say, Bob, I'm not sure if I died right now, I'd go to heaven. With nobody looking around but me so I can pray more intelligently, would you just lift your hand and say, here I am, Bob, pray for me. I won't embarrass you. I won't do anything at all but acknowledge a hand and then I'll, I'll pray. Anybody? Here's my hand. I'm not sure if I died. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. God bless you, man. God bless you. I see it in the back. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Anybody else? This was for you today. This was for you today. Anybody?